we carry so much just stuff in our lives, all of our burdens and all the things that we have going on in our, that are weighing on us. Can we bring it to you and know that you are with us, that you want to be near to us? Even now, as we come together, make that truth about you known um, in a more real and deeper way for um, my brothers and sisters here together today. Jesus, the God who is with us. We have this little candle that shines out a little bit of light in the darkness like each of us have just a little bit. We look to you, Jesus, the one who says, there's a day coming where you won't need a candle anymore. You won't need a lamp anymore. You won't need the sun anymore. You're gonna be able to see. It's gonna be so bright and brilliant because of you. And we're looking forward to that day and say, come Lord Jesus, come. Come and be with us. In your name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Unless you're in the fourth and fifth, great, then you can leave or stay. Everybody high five a fifth grader as they go out. God bless them. We believe in you guys. Go study together. I grew up in a church, so, you know, I know about the whole you leave in the middle. It'd be nice to get a high five every once in a while. Welcome to the second week of uh, this Advent season. We're thinking through and praying through just keeping uh, that reality of Christ being with us is a central focus for this season. And so we're looking at Bible stories and things that uh, really feature this reality that God is a God who is with us. So I'd like to invite you to uh, a story from the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, the Bible that I have, it's on page 721, and so I'd like to encourage you there. It's a very encouraging story um, throughout the years of of people showing just great faithfulness and trust in God, and then God also interacting with them um, in a very confirming and encouraging way. And so, uh, yeah, as you're turning there, it just brings to mind this story of how this has been encouraging to people over the centuries. In the 20th century, during World War II, this story has a little bit of a highlight. As you probably know um, from, like, the Christopher Nolan film, there's this uh, scenario where 350,000 English soldiers were trapped on the shores of France at Dunkirk. And they were trying to just get away from uh, the German army um, they couldn't get across this, the English Channel, and how are they going to get, and it's just full of tension and, and hopelessness. Winston Churchill has just recently been um, in state as prime minister, and he's scrambling, trying to get these guys safe and, and get them home. And I don't know, this story, I mean, this is a fact, right? The, this whole country comes together to rescue these guys. But there is a story about a a, a correspondence that went out from the uh, troops that just was in response to, like, how are they doing? And it was three words. And if you can find, like, a peer-reviewed source on this, I would love that. I've been trying to find it, but, I mean, I can't, but it's all over the place. So this story is something you got to kind of wrestle with. The three words that they sent back were, but if not. 
three words describing like their situation and where they were and, and how much this led or played into the reality of what happens next where hundreds and hundreds of private citizens got into their fishing boats and drove over across the English Channel to pick up 339,000 people, uh, uh, soldiers, and bring them home to safety. Uh, is a pretty remarkable show of courage and bravery. And what if that correspondence had something to do with that? Those words actually come from the King James translation of the story I want to read to you today. Is is of people who have their backs against the wall, intimidated by a massive, powerful force, but they're still saying, we are not going to surrender and bow down. I'd like to read you the story um, from Daniel chapter 3. And I'd like to invite you to stand for it, but I'm going to read the whole thing. And so if you can't stand the whole time, then I won't judge you for it. And there's like mandatory standing and stuff in this story. So I just want to make it clear. I'm no Nebuchadnezzar. If you have to take a break, that's fine. No, yeah. So hear the word of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high, 60 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, all the other important provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. So, the sad traps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, and magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood there before it. Then a herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. <laughs> uh, therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horns of flute, the lyre, zither, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every religion fell down and worshiped the image of gold that the King, the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the king, may, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship in the image of gold. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there's some Jews whom you have said over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before him, and Nebuchadnezzar said, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? And when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, good, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. 
Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown in the blazing furnace, the, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But if not, there are those words. But even if he does not, we, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Well, then Nebuchadnezzar, furious with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot, the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four. Four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come out here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them and saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor their hair or their heads singed, or their robes were not scorched, and there was not even the smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than to serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree, decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be burnt into a pile of rubble for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. A little bit of an overreaction there in the end. <laughs> maybe. Maybe hyperbole, I don't know. Okay, he seems to be pretty literal here. Very encouraging story about people trying to be faithful to God in the midst of overwhelming temptation to compromise. It's also a story about God. It reveals to us a little bit about God's heart. And the reason why I say that is because as you like look at this story, there could be very, there's various ways of interpreting it. All right, so is this a, this is what we call a prescriptive story or a descriptive story, right? I mean, is it describing something or prescribing? And what is it prescribing? Because there's no big, long tradition coming down from the Judeo-Christian tradition where people think and cite this story and say, because of this story, sometimes we like to go into fire to talk to God. And so if that's something you're thinking right now, I just want to say from the beginning, that is not my, I'm not advising this, all right? 
there isn't really any big trend of like, if we have enough faith, we're going to go into furnaces sometimes. And like, that's where we're going to meet God. And so what do you do with this miracle where they're, they're meeting somebody in this fire that it doesn't say, right? Is it God? Is it a son of the God? You know, it, it, they say what they can say. I've always taken this to mean that this was maybe Jesus pre-incarnate or something, sort of the way that it sounds to me. Um, and in this miracle, we then see, though, a tradition talking about God's heart. And if you take anything away from this, know that when you're showing out for God and trying to be faithful for him, and it is something that's overwhelming, and you don't know how this is going to play out for you, just know that God is a God who wants you to know he's with you. He was with them in the fire. He was with them before they were in the fire. He was with them after it. This is who he is. This whole story of the Bible where we all have to deal with things like last week where Rod talked about um, the Garden of Eden and, and getting kicked out of that or whatever and this feeling that we have about being separated from God and interacting with darkness and evil in this world, this big story. I always took growing up as a story about like how I have to like work my way back in and like get God to love me again. But it's actually a story that says God wants to be with you. He, all of these stories put together is just interactions where God is saying, I am here. I am right here. I got you. If anybody had a reason to be in a place of despair and hopelessness, it would have been these guys. And if you are in a place like that, I just want to encourage you today to know that God is a God who wants to be with you through that. The book of Daniel is set in a time, a period of uh, Israel's history we call the exile. It's a time where they're taken into captivity, um, and it is a very destabilizing time. Nationally speaking, it's destabilizing, and socially, everything is just in upheaval. For the last 100-plus years, Israel has been in a... Uh, civil war that split the country in half and then the northern kingdom has already been taken captive a long time ago and all that's left is judah the southern kingdom or what i call the texas of israel okay uh this this one tribe right if you read those stories that say all of israel went into battle and judah right it's like what is that all about okay and so they they uh they are their own kingdom and they are now dissolving and disintegrating. And, and what's happened is this giant, massive superpower, uh, Babylon, in the height of its power, is starting to take over this little piece of land, the kingdom of Judah, uh, kingdom of Israel. And they have decided to take into captivity the best and the brightest first. And the reason for this type of... Uh, a reason for this type of captivity is what they want to do is get very influential people to, to buy in or to assimilate into their culture first so that they will then influence people who look up to them and respect them. Not a bad way of doing marketing. We kind of do the same stuff now, right? Get your product into an influential person's hand. You know, like I never would have in my life thought I should drive a Lincoln, okay? But then when you see Matthew McConaughey, like, just relax. And you're like, maybe, uh, I don't know. Maybe we should buy one of those. And so, you know, it's, it works. Um, and so this, this has been the story for these, these guys. They're, they're being tempted to, take, to eat the food of Babylon, to, 
to worship the gods, to wear the clothes, to be Babylonian so that when everybody else comes, they will be influential upon them. But the problem is they're just so, they have so much resolve that they are not going to compromise. They keep threading the needle and like not letting go of, of their convictions and yet also bringing blessing and like clearly bringing good things to that, that they don't know what to do with them. They're kind of an enigmatic group. Like we can't let these guys go. Usually they would just delete these guys and take the ones who will compromise, right? And so these stories are continually set here to encourage people who are in a situation of destabilization and are tempted to fall away from their convictions about God. If that's any piece of you right now, then lean in. So where are they? If you don't know anything about Babylon, let's just take a moment and pause and just get into it emotionally. And if you know me, you know I'm not a very visual learner. It's never really, it's not really my thing. But Libby tapped me on the shoulder this week. She's like, you know, there's some really good visual aids for Babylon. So I thought... All right, I'm going to bring some visual stuff, okay? So I got some pictures to show you to start thinking through where they're at. They've been brought 900 miles away from home to um, Babylon, right on the banks of the Euphrates River. Here's actually the site you can go see today. This has been um, studied for over 100 years, and it just seems like such an exciting place because there's so much stuff to uncover right here on the banks of the Euphrates. This is also just a fun fact, like not that far, maybe 100 yards or so away from Saddam Hussein's like house. He built a big palace there. Kind of make, tells you a little bit about who he imagines himself uh, to be, the next Nebuchadnezzar, if you will. Um, but this is just a small piece of what Babylon actually was at the time of Daniel. And uh, so here's a f- digital reconstruction showing just, this is, um, you know, over four square miles of city. It is the largest city in the history of the world at the time. Um, And it is the source of two of those seven wonders of the ancient world. And um, pretty intimidating space to be brought into if you're a little, you know, southern, southern boy from Israel. And uh, so I wanted to also show you that to show you a little bit of the impression that this would leave. Uh, there's a gate that's very important in um, the Berlin Museum. If you go and see, this is a reconstruction of the actual gate that would have been the Ishtar Gate where captives would have been led through this. I mean, as you look at that, just imagine being one of these three guys just walking through these gates and, and seeing these uh, images that are very intimidating of like war horses and lions and like this is where you're, you're headed into kind of the heart of it all. Uh, I also brought a brick with me to show you um, a couple things. One is this inscription that's been stamped on this brick which is like um, a dedication to their god Marduk and it's just you know, a way of just not, I mean, just propaganda all over the city of this is who we believe in and this is your here, this is our God. But the very first word on here, I mean, this is something that was important to me, is the name King Nebuchadnezzar. If you're wondering, is there anybody in the Bible that's been verified as a real person? Is this all just a myth? Well, guess what? This is actually 
the king who was in play during the time of Daniel uh, and during, in, in, in the biggest point of the history of the Babylonian Empire was under him. Now that stamp isn't just one thing that's been found with his name on it. This is one of like estimated 15 million bricks. That would have said that. Now if you want to make 15 million bricks in Babylon, you're going to have to have a pretty good plan to do that. A typical mud brick, you put a form, put some clay and hay in there and let it dry for over a year. But the Babylonian bricks were baked. And so you have kind of a pottery type baking the bricks thing going on here. And if you want to bake something like that, you're going to have to heat it up to over a thousand degrees. And so in my imagination saying like, if we want to have 15 million bricks and bake them in a kiln, we are going to have to have a really big furnace operation going on here. And so just to put that into your imagination a little bit, I have one more picture to show you of an amazing find. They found the thing that he built. I'm just kidding. This is actually just something else that <laughs> they found. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? Um, this is, this is a, a thing that's just in Berlin that has the same dimensions. It's the exact same dimensions uh, that are laid out. Um, and I thought it would just be a nice visual. I don't know anything about this, and so if this is a really offensive thing to you, for whatever reason, I just want to say sorry. I'm just, I'm just looking at it as a visual potential like shape for what, what Nebuchadnezzar built, because that's where this story begins. It begins at a place, in a plain right by Babylon, where he brought everybody out to something that he built. And he said, I want everybody to worship this, or to worship here at this site. Why did he do that? Is that something that they do all the time? I mean, is this, how many things can we map onto this from our, our day? All right, so worship. It's not that inconceivable that he would do this because if you look into Babylonian history, right around the same time that they brought these people over, right at the turn of the century, there was a big revolt uh, in Babylon. And so it, it isn't inconceivable that they would have a, a, a ceremony or something that they would set up for um, devotion, for loyalty, someone to pledge allegiance to Babylon. And if they don't, this kind of also explains a little bit of the um, punishment that, that takes place if you don't do this. Uh, you know, it kind of seems a little harsh. We're going to, like, kill you. But they're trying to uh, make a ceremony where they can say this is the people that are in who believe um, in what we believe in. And so if you put your minds there, just imagine. We, we don't live in it. We're not imagining a time where there's a separation of church and state. There, this is, that is a thought that never would have crossed their mind. This is a blend. Your national allegiance here is also connected to the gods that are here. So asking them to worship isn't that crazy. But not worshiping is. So it's, it's like if you're in a situation where you're not worshiping or honoring the gods of the local uh, land, that, that you will threaten potentially everybody that lives there. If, if the, God, the gods don't send a famine to just one family, they send it to everybody. They don't send a plague to one, everybody has to deal with this. So if you're the one person not doing what you should be doing, you're technically just viewed as a threat to everybody. And so that's the world that we're living in a little bit here. And it's hard because when we use the word worship, 
It gets so flimsy. You know, what, what is worship? Why, why didn't they just go in there and cross their fingers or tie their sandal right at the right time? You know, oh. Uh, and, and, and that might be a symptom for us a little bit about how worship isn't taken as seriously as it could be. The word that we use for worship sometimes just means the songs that we listen to or time that we sing together. But it does, it does sort of imply sometimes that we could just be like, it's not as strong as a commitment as, what, as serious as they're taking it. Good or bad, you decide. But for me, that is a little sketchy. Um, to live in a culture where you can say such strong things to God, but then not have that much accountability on the other side of it. Doesn't Brandon Manning say if one of the big causes of atheism in our world is Christians who acknowledge God with their lips but deny him with their lives? Maybe worship you know, should be something that we take a little more seriously. And in a way to do that is to see the guys in the Bible, when they talk about worship, are not talking about the prayer and singing time. They're talking about allegiance. That's closer to the word, loyalty, fidelity. So like imagine our modern context, there are stuff that we do in our culture that points to fidelity, loyalty, and allegiance, right? Don't get mad at me for saying this, but it's just the truth. One time I wasn't paying attention when the song of our country was being sung at a sports event. I was just, I'm not trying to say I'm not paying I just wasn't in the right, you know, and I thought it was optional. It's not. <laughs> it's not. It's like you broke a law, right? I was reading this book. I don't know why. Why have I have a book at a hockey game? I don't know, but I, <laughs> I was so into it. Um, but think like that. I mean, everybody's there. There's a song that's being sung. There's people. It's a time to say, I am here. I belong. I'm respecting this group and this nation and this, this situation um, in a very similar feel, right, to this situation that they're in. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, the, the, the number one thing that they were told to do upon coming into Canaan was to not make alliances. No, um, do not go in and make um, treaties with the nations that are there because you're going to have to like acknowledge their gods and we're going to keep ourselves from that right and so it's a big part of their worldview to it wouldn't be a situation like this like you're saying something if you're saying i am going to um, pledge allegiance to uh, nebuchadnezzar so what do you do now this is a little bit of where they're at and it's easier than you think for us to translate this forwards, right? I mean, we might not have a Nebuchadnezzar per se, like telling us bow or, or else. Um, but what this story really does is it brings us to the front row of what idolatry uh, really looks like, the function of idolatry in our world. It's been there for thousands of years, and it's still there today. How does idolatry work? Well, there is something that is set up as the temptation or the idol, that represents a promise of something more um, ambiguous, but the God, right, that it represents. So false gods and idols go hand in hand. It's not the same thing, but they go hand in hand. So for example, if you have a false God and, and a disproportionate amount of love and trust for something like control, 
That would be the God. But what does that God use to promise you control? If you close your eyes right now and just said, like, in your heart, what, if I could just have or see this one thing happen, I know that I would have control over blank. This is where the idol lives, where you start to, you know, you start to worship it and take and, ple- and pledge allegiance, like being loyal to this certain thing. Uh, another God that would sort of, you know, be existing in our world is one of self-value and self-worth. Um, so what's the thing that would communicate that? It's not like the thing is bad, but when that thing is, re- is, is representing a promise of if you have this, you will be more valuable. <laughs> If you had that or looked like that, you will then have, you'll be more lovable. Uh, for comfort. This is another God, right, that exists sort of in our minds and hearts. And what is something that you could write down of like, I promise you, you will have satisfaction if you have this. You will have comfort and, and this will be just completing you if you had this, right? And don't write the new Ford Bronco or whatever, right? I mean... That's my idol. No, I'm just, just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, so, so what do you do, right? I mean, um, we might not have like an explicit demand to bow, but as I was really praying and thinking about it this week, um, like where does this live in my life in a very common place? I just, because I just don't want to come to church and read about it and get close, but not close enough to where I leave and feel like I really got to wrestle through it. And so one of the things I was thinking about where this lives, it's not necessarily in the word bow. Nobody's really asking me explicitly to bow, um, but it's implied in this, in this paradigm. And it's very easy to remember because it's only one letter difference, the word that I hear all the time. It's not bow, it's how. How is just one step away from bow. And it sounds like this. How will you ever be loved unless you look like this? So bow down to me, worship this, and you'll get to a place where you can finally be loved. Finally be who you want to be. Or, or how, how could you, like how, how is it possible that your children will be in a world where this will be true? How? Not, not without me. <laughs> bow. Give to me your loyalty. Give to me your allegiance. I promise you I'll give you that. How? How could this possibly, um, how could you possibly be satisfied without this in your life? So give me your money. Give me your time. Give me your family. Sacrifice for me and I'll make that happen for you. Now that stuff just starts to churn and work its way inside of my mind, inside of my life. Like you're constantly, I'm constantly hearing this. Like, Uh, it's inundating. And I just want to say to you today that in the kingdom of heaven, you see uh, what these three men uh, do alive and well. For when the howl comes down and it's just knocking on your door, in the kingdom of heaven, you don't need a how, you need a who. What they say to him, we don't know how this is going to work. I, I know that I have a who, and he is able to fix it, to make this happen. I, I am not going to sacrifice my who. We have somebody who is with us and is able to see us through. 
What's that song we sing? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I don't need to have a how to figure out how this is going to all work out. I just need to know that I'm clinging to Jesus and he is the one who's going to help and he's going to be there and he is going to, he, it's not worth trading. Have you ever like experienced the peace that comes from following Christ? The peace that transcends all understanding. It says to all the, the how, I don't know, but I have this peace. I am not going to give it up. The joy that comes from knowing that Christ has overcome the world, that he puts inside of it, it's just, it's not something that I would ever trade. I mean, that is the light that shines out in the darkness. And for all the house, they don't win over a who. Not in this story, not with even the king. He saw the who, and he said, out of his mouth, I, he worshiped. He, he's like, that is, he spoke the truth after that. And that's exactly what we're told will happen to believers if they will let the light shine out of their life. The world's going to see and say, I got to give glory to God for this one. I, that's what we're, that's what we're talking, that's what the New Testament talks. And so let us just be a people who will focus on the who, will cling to the who, and to know that our God is a God who is able to save us from the fire. And even if not, I wouldn't trade for the world. Amen. Jesus is the one who will promise that he'll be faithful to us. And so in all of the faithfulness we see in these guys, we see a glimpse of the, even more the heart of Christ to get us out of captivity and to get us out of Babylon and out of darkness. So aside from that, I've kind of got a couple ideas I'd like to just sort of share with you based on uh, some, of, some of this story. It's about faithfulness. The thing is, as we realize that Jesus is our faithful one, as disciples of Christ, we're always looking at ways to be like him. Knowing that his empowering presence is the thing here that really um, is enigmatic to, to the Babylonian kingdom, we just see an example of faithfulness. And so if this will help you in your discipleship to Jesus, then just stop. I have like three and a half ideas to, to put before you based on this story. All right, as we're trying to be faithful to God in this world, consider this. Number one, this isn't the first time that they decided to stand or, or to be faithful to God. This is just the big one, right? But this wasn't the, the first time they decided, you know, like today I'm going to be faithful. You can see in the stories previous to this where they chose not to eat a certain way. They chose not to dress a certain way. Um, they trusted God, and they put this in their lifestyle. And I, I think that reminds me of what Jesus said. What, he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. This is our expectation. It's not likely. It's not a likely expectation to live your life in a way that says, I'm not concerned about being faithful with little, but I know when the time comes, I'm going to be faithful with much. Maybe, maybe. I think it's much more likely if you let the kingdom of God into your imagination and start to just shape and form how you imagine uh, your life going in like very mundane situations and let that start to shape who you become so that when you are in a big, uh, meaningful moment, it's going to be fluent. They, did, they, they were ready to do it. I mean, let me put it this way. 
we have a message of reconciliation, a message where God is not counting sins against the world anymore, a message of forgiveness. And if we cannot figure out how to drive down the road without betraying that message and like showing all kinds of foment and hatred for people on the like how are we expecting that we're going to be able to do it in a moment when it actually counts? I mean, just sit and imagine, how could a Christian drive? What is there a way that I could put blessing on this road and room for people? Hospitality, right? Like we're here together. Like I want to, I love you guys. Like let the people who are driving around you feel lucky that they're there with you. How do you, how do you, how do you do the gospel on the road? How do you live out the kingdom in the, in the businesses that you frequent throughout the week? The people that you're talking to, uh, how is there a way that you can show them in just small ways, the love of God in the way that you treat the server or, or the person you're interacting with? You can't expect to just be a person who's flippant with these interactions and, and, and unhelpful, and then all of a sudden turn around and be like, no, I'm gonna be Shadrach. <laughs> I don't know. This is something that's been a staple as a part of their life. And you know what? Their identity is so solid and sure. Just look at them in this story. They are just not, like they don't even, <laughs> they're just not bowing. There's no signs out. There's no need for validation. They're not making a big, you know, wave. They're just off in the corner. Everybody bows and they're just like, it's not, it's not gonna be me. They're standing before the king. There's, this is so weird to me. There's not a big drama. There's no big prayer. They're just like, do whatever you want to do. There is no conversation here. We have no need to defend ourselves before you, your majesty. This is just us. That is a sign of somebody who is so sturdy and sure and have been faithful for many years that they don't need any type of validation. This is who we are. So think about it. This could be a part of your work and your discipleship as you, as you go throughout your week. Just ways to be faithful with little so that you can be faithful with much. Uh, second thing I'd like to point out is this. Do you have any friends? <laughs> I know it's not so hard to get friends, okay? We've got all kinds of friends on the internet and all that stuff. But, like, do you have friends like this? Where you're in a situation where you're overwhelmed and you're feeling tempted to compromise, but they're going to be there standing with you. A cord of three is not easily broken, you guys. And if you don't know the value of having like good companions who are able to do this with you, do this life, then you need to really think this through. It's a big part of my story. When I first came to Grand Rapids, I, I don't know, I had whatever. I was a cobbled together thing, like my, and I just, it was all bad influence. It turned out it was just all bad influence. And somebody told me, if you want to grow spiritually, it's directly going to be related to the people you surround yourself with. If you want to get there and you have a goal to be like Christ, you got to pay attention to who you surround yourself with. So I, uh, he, he used to work here, his name is Greg, he told me you have to get out of the job that you're in. It's bad influence. The girl that you're dating it's just not good. The place you're living, it's full of corruption, all this stuff. I'm like, okay. So I leave. The very next day, I got fired from that job. I don't even know why to this day. <laughs> Check. I'm just <laughs> one third of the way there. I, ch- I call my girlfriend on the way home, and I'm talking. I'm thinking, you know what? 
I never, I never broke up with someone in my life. God bless her. I said, I'm trying to become a Christian more, and I just, I need some space. So we, we ended things. Check. I get home. I have only a little bit of money. I give it to my roommate. I say, I need to go. And I left. And I have this station wagon. I'm fully prepared of just to live in this station wagon. And I run into these people who were starting up this prayer house. And I had been talking to them. And that day, they said to me, we're thinking about maybe you moving in. <sighs> when can I move in? <laughs> right now. I, I mean, that day, I just went straight there. And, um, and I just think back on how many of you stood with me and have stood with me over the years of together. We just were like, we're, we're going for it. And we had so many seasons of 24-7 prayer and time where we're trying to just do right by the gospel in this city. And like, it is just to me, non-negotiable. I would not in any way resemble the person that I am and, and be where I'm at if it weren't for so many of you to just be in community together and to be here. Do you have people who are going to stand with you because the likelihood of staying faithful without people that are with you I think goes um, goes down significantly and a part part a and a part b of this last one and it's all about legacy faithfulness when it comes to legacy I I want to go in back in time with them and then forwards and so um, my question is whose kids are these You know, I mean, there's somebody's kids. They're what, 17? I think there's an estimate 17 to 20 years old. They're somebody's kids. And I, I first thought of this, I just imagined the story. I thought, I have two daughters, and I'm like, what if? You know how proud I would be, you know, to see them just stand when they were told to bow. But I thought, you know what, what are the odds that they're going to do it if their family, like, isn't a family that builds a culture around this? And I started to think about where do these guys come from? And you know what? It's not even 10 years when Josiah died. Imagine the last 30 years, this is when Josiah had the huge reform. You guys remember the story, right? Like, King Josiah, 2 Kings 23, like, he... He never read the Bible before, and they found one, like, in the basement or whatever, the temple, and they started reading it, and his, like, mind was blown about how they're not supposed to have idols, and he's the king, and, like, so he went through and smashed them all and, like, decommissioned all the spots and, like, got everything cleaned up, and then he recommitted his life to God and invited the entire nation to do it, and they did it with him. Those are these guys' parents, like, imagine, I'm not trying to put, like, any pressure on you or feel like it's all on you to have the next shatter be shaking a vinegar. No, it's, it's more of, like, a big what if. You know, like, what if a contribution, your contribution could be, like, cultivating a culture and a space where there's an allergy to idols, and you're not going to have that in the house. And then what if they saw that and your kids, they look and they see you doing hard things and they see that this is something that matters to you. And what if deep down they thought, I can't wait till I get a chance to be like my parents. Like they can't wait to get a chance to stand that day. And so this is my time. 
the faithfulness that they show, it's just remarkable. And I wonder, like, how much of that has to do with the family they grew up in who said, no, we are not going to bow to idols. I'm excited to think about what that could look like in my life. Legacy matters going back, but it also matters going forwards. And you got to wonder, like, how much of their, like, faithfulness continued on after them. It's not 500 years later. People from this area were looking at the stars. And these guys were put in charge of the astrologers. We call them astrologers in Daniel. Matthew chapter 2 calls them magi. And they traveled 900 miles back because they saw a star risen over Bethlehem and they knew that the king was going to be born and they got there. And I don't know, like, is this a part of the legacy of people who were refusing to bow all this time to only in this moment now see the true king and they can't help it. They bow, finally, here he is with their gift in hand and they give it to him and say, this is the one that we've been waiting for. And I just want to invite you into that. Be careful who you bow to, but bow to the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Bow to the one who says, I will go into that fire. I will go into it for you. I will always be there with you. The one who says, call me Emmanuel. I will never leave you. I'll be the God who's with you. So let's just take a deep breath and pray through some of this as we go. Yeah, Father in heaven, I just thank you for bringing us into your family and bringing us into your, your rich story of a contrast to all the kingdoms and promises of the world that are empty and broken and bringing us into one full of life and resurrection and hope. Help us to go out and be a people who pick up our cross and follow you, believing that this is the true way to life. And help us to just shine out in our world that reality so that the world can be like the king here and say, I see something going on there that I did not expect. I see something going on that I've never seen before in my life. I see something that's just God. It's just God with them. And I want it. And I want to be a part of that. <laughs> Thank you for this story, for the encouragement, and for the tradition. Help us to do right by it. In your name I pray. Amen.